Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to yet another fabulous edition of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham at the home of Common Sense. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Yesterday, we made the startling discovery that should shock every last one of us and our families amongst all the big stories of the week, all of the news that's going on, all of the revelations about Oscar ceremonies and slapping poisoned former Premier League football owners. We were told by countless listeners and viewers about what is going on inside our hospitals. The NHS is deliberately now acting against the best interests of the people of this great nation of ours. In hospitals up and down the land, people are being denied access to their relatives, to family members, and also, by the way, to common decency. Thanks to Bernard Sparks, a businessman in the northeast who told us his story, there was an outpouring of information from up and down the land where people are being told they can only visit patients one at a time for one hour a day, every single day. In Bernard's case, it meant that he was able to visit his son who had attempted suicide, but his mother, who had flown from another part of Britain, was not allowed to see her own son, who was in a coma. In Scotland, it's even worse. No one's allowed to visit anyone, even if they're at the end of their lives. When we ended the show yesterday, there were amazing stories that we didn't have the chance to air. Amazing people who called in to tell us what had happened to them. Today, we would like you to do that again, please. We want to hear those stories because something has to be done about this. So if you did try to get through yesterday, please call today. We will make sure you get on because we need to send a very, very strong message to Sajid Javid, to the NHS and to all the people in this health service of ours who say that it is the greatest health service in the world. Well, I've got news for you guys. It's cruel. It's inhuman and it must end. Today, I'm going to call on those running our National Health Service to change these hideous rules and you know what to do. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we've got a host of great guests to help us with that. Eh? Martin Gower, former NHS Trust Chairman, will tell us how we got here exactly. Brendan O'Neill is here as the Chief Political Writer for Spike. He's got plenty to say about all manner of things and I will be asking him about what has gone wrong with the NHS and why seemingly it can't be fixed. Laura Dodsworth is checking in with us too. She's got plenty to say about all the gender madness going on around us at the moment. Can anybody find a Labour MP who knows what a woman is? Maybe we could ask Angela Rayner. I think she might know. I'm not sure, really. Lord Robothon is also here to talk about British Army cuts and the latest news from Ukraine. Plus, it's the Prince Philip Memorial Service at Westminster Abbey. Rupert Bell is there live 
for us. You will not miss a thing. It's the first time we're going to see Prince Andrew out and about since he made that settlement uh, with Virginia Giffray. 0344 499 1000 is the number to call us on. We've got a lot going on today, but we mostly want to focus on the NHS, why it's not fit for purpose, why it's treating people with such cruelty, and why on earth it has this ludicrous COVID policy as if we're still in the midst of a pandemic which is clearly over. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest-growing radio station on the planet. Now also on television, it is, of course, Talk Radio TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on another uh, Tuesday as we look ahead to what's going to happen in the rest of the week. We're told there might be some... Uh, Penalty notices handed out at Downing Street. If that happens, uh, we'll let you know. Uh, but the people that are involved in charging people with those particular crimes, for which is uh, what they are, um, we're not probably going to find out who's got them anyway. So we shall see whether that becomes a story later on or not. At the moment, uh, there are far more better and more interesting things to be getting along with. Let's talk to Brendan O'Neill, Chief Political Writer at Spike. Brendan, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. How's it going? Yeah, very well indeed. I'm one of those uh, journalists that quite likes to go off-piste, as it were, um, and that's what we're going to do a little bit this morning. I mean, obviously, there are lots of big stories to talk about with you, which we may get to. Um, but we discovered something yesterday which was quite shocking about the NHS. Now, we know that the NHS is not fit for purpose in an awful lot of areas, but what I didn't know personally until yesterday is that every single hospital, it would seem, in these aisles of ours, is still operating as if COVID is a massive, dangerous uh, disease that can kill loads and loads of people. They're only allowing one person in for one hour a day to visit sick relatives, dying relatives, relatives in comas. I mean, it's quite disgraceful what's going on. It's completely disgraceful and it's inhumane and it's just plain nasty. That's how I would put it. And, the, and, and it's incredibly cruel to deprive people who are either very ill or maybe in the last... A uh, few days of their lives to deprive them of the right to see their family, to see their loved ones, to hold someone's hand. And I think that the the real issue here is the way in which the NHS is viewed these days. It's viewed increasingly as the national religion. Mm. You're not allowed to criticise it. During the pandemic, we all were told to stay at home to save the NHS. It was basically like worshiping some new sun god. You know, you have to make all these sacrifices to please the god. And, and that's how it's treated. You know, it's a very, it's, it's a kind of sanctified institution that is held up as this saintly, wonderful uh, organization that no one is allowed to criticize. And as a result of that, it kind of gets away with anything that it wants. And that's why I think it's incredibly important to put pressure on the NHS and the people who run it to answer questions about why they're still behaving as if there's a pandemic on. Absolutely right. Well, our first uh, sort of a conversation yesterday was with a, a businessman called Bernard Smart so I personally know, uh, who was trying to see his own son, who had tried to take his own life. Um, he had his own problems. He was asked uh, to leave the hospital when he started question questioning uh, who was responsible for making this decision that only he, for one hour, could go and see his own son when his uh, his ex-wife was not allowed in because she had already been had her place taken, as it were, uh, by the father. And he was told, basically, we're not going to give you any information, we're not going to tell you who's responsible, and if you don't leave the premises, we're going to escort you out through security. Uh, I mean, it's really disturbing to treat people like that who are not 
committing any kind of offense but just want to visit a family member who's in distress yeah. or who is unwell and i think it's almost like what the nhs is doing is is rationing love you know it's basically saying to patients there's only a certain amount of time you can have with a visitor there's only a certain amount of visitors you can have we're going to ration those engagements and decide who can come in when they can come in and how many can come in at the same time and those kinds of judgments i don't think it's right for the nhs to make them we are getting through the pandemic COVID's coming back in some ways but it is now a manageable virus and there have been manageable viruses in our communities for centuries and centuries so to act as if we're still in an emergency that needs special rules it's just wrong and in these kinds of instances it's also cruel it really is and uh, we've been asking for the last 24 hours now practically for a statement from um, the Sunderland Health Trust uh, for a shortened version of its real name one of the things we learned yesterday was that in the last four or five years they've changed their name about four or five times which means every time they change their name they change all the signage they change all the headed notepaper they change all the signs inside the hospital outside the hospital spending a fortune right on things which are not necessary and things which are not required we also learned today uh, that nhs trusts are issuing instructions to all of their various clinical staff to make sure they ask men if they're pregnant before they have a scan i mean it's as though some maniac has taken hold of this place and turned it upside down Oh, completely. And I just wonder what, you know, the vast majority of people think when they see this kind of thing. And, uh, you know, one thing that people always say about the NHS is that it's underfunded. My view is that it's got plenty of money. It's got it's sloshing with money, yeah. but it spends it on stupid things. You know, it's, a load of it is spent on the clipboard class, you mm. know, the managerial class who manage things that probably don't really need that much management. So they get paid a huge amount of money. And then there are these stupid initiatives about um, being politically correct, being woke, making sure the right words are said. Make, um, I wonder how many diversity officers the NHS has, for example. So it spends a lot of money on things that are unnecessary, whereas it should just be spending money on doctors and nurses and medicine and making people well when they are ill. That's what the NHS should do. But it's become this kind of political organization that also wants to correct our thinking as well as mend our bodies mm. and that really is not the job of the nhs it really isn't and they have been sort of gripped haven't they by this sort of advisory role that they would like to take so in effectively if you've got something wrong with you don't go to the gp surgery because you might infect people with some kind of illness i mean what do they think um, people go to a GP surgery for. You don't go to a GP surgery, there's nothing wrong with you. You go when you're sick. And if the GPs in this country don't want to catch a disease, maybe they shouldn't be doctors. You know, it's it, the, the GPs, I think, have really let themselves down over the past two years. They just haven't played the role they should have played, which was being, you know, being there for the communities, for sick people, helping people in need. GP services just stopped in many instances and uh, I had to have a, a consultancy with the GP, GP during the pandemic and I did it through a computer where I had to pick up all these gadgets, someone on the other end of the computer was telling me to pick up a gadget, put it in my ear, stick it down my throat. It was an incredibly disorientating mm. experience. I and bet. That went on for way too long, and it's still going on in many instances. People need these kinds of health services. More to the point, we pay for them. We pay for the health service. We expect it to be of good quality, and we expect it to treat us with respect. And that very often is not the case. Too often, the NHS either treats us like uh, annoyances. You know, why are you coming into this doctor's surgery? Do you really need an appointment? 
or it treats us as these ill-educated, stupid, regressive people who need to be told how to think about all sorts of issues. So the NHS has lost its way. It's become a hectoring organisation and it really needs to have a word with itself. It really does. But I mean, we do have a lot of these conversations, Brenda. This is a particularly irksome one for me because I think to, to, to deny people the ability to hug their loved ones in, in some cases before they die because they won't be able to see them ever again outside of the hospital when they'll, they, they just won't be around anymore. You know, this is particularly awful, but it seems to me that nobody really has the courage to admit this in, in public. And I include in that even the, the Conservative government of this country, who are terrified of being accused of privatising it, terrified of being accused of being the cruel Tories. You know, the people who are cruel here are not the politicians. It's the people running the NHS. Yeah, we, and we really need to think about that because, you know, I remember the Labour Party a few months ago put out a tweet in which they were basically talking about how hard nurses had it during the pandemic. Now, I have no doubt that frontline nurses worked incredibly hard during the pandemic uh, to save lives and to look after sick people. No one would doubt that. But this tweet that they put out was from a nurse saying the hardest thing I had to do was to send away a man who was weeping and wailing in the car park because he couldn't see his dying wife. Mm. And I thought to myself, this doesn't do what you think it does. This doesn't show how wonderful nurses in the NHS are. This shows how cruel and insane our institutions went during the lockdown and how they completely lost the moral plot, lost any sense of humanity. And to have a, a, a member of the NHS saying that she basically watched as a man was screaming and weeping in a car park and refused to allow him to see a dying that a loved one is just disgusting, actually. And if we carry on those habits, those inhumane habits into the post-COVID era, everyone will lose out and everyone will lose faith in the NHS. I mean, it's almost as though we've reached a point where people don't expect the NHS to work terribly well. Some people I've been speaking to over the course of the last two years have just gone private, not because they've got loads of money, not because they are, you know, in some ways, um, you know, wedded to privatising the NHS, but because they have to because they're in pain, uh, they can't get seen by the NHS, they can't get an appointment, uh, people are on waiting lists for years. I mean, we've already been told by the government, no matter how much money we give you, uh, we won't be able to help you out for at least another five years when the, uh, the waiting lists might actually start reducing. I mean, it's a complete shambles. I mean, in no other world would anybody allow this to continue. Yeah, it is a shambles. And, you know, I'm in favour of universal health care. I actually think it's a good idea. I, I don't think it's something we should bow down and scrape before, like some kind of religion. But I think it's a good idea to offer free health care to people who need it. And if we can afford that as a nation and if people are willing to pay for it, as most people are, that's great. That's all to the good. But... The health service we currently have, the free health service we currently have, is not fit for purpose. Mm. And there are so many things going wrong with it, from GP services through to the way in which people are treated in hospitals. And even if you compare our, our, our cancer results, our cancer treatment results, to other countries around the world, they are lacking, they're not good enough. And then you add on top of that the huge waiting lists that have accrued because of the pandemic, because we basically allowed the NHS to become the national COVID service, yes. and we neglected so many other diseases from cancer to heart disease to mental health problems. All of those are complete and utter abject failures. And unless the health secretary is willing to admit that and then get to grips with it, we're going to be in trouble. Yeah, I think so. Because also looking back now on those two years that we went through, it would appear that more and more reports and more and more studies uh, and more and more polls are coming out um, 
to support those of us who said, are you sure about this? Are you absolutely sure that you have to shut everything down and tell everybody not to go to hospital and tell everybody to stop going to the doctor uh, and to make sure that they don't uh, mingle with too many other people? Because now we currently have apparently the highest ever rate of COVID ever in Scotland, uh, the place where they've had mask mandates for ages, where they've been locking down for much longer than everybody else. You know, what's it all about? Yeah, and, you know, according to the latest statistics from various organisations, the harder the lockdown that a country had didn't necessarily mean that they had fewer deaths. Uh, in, in some instances, deaths rose even even during during lockdowns. And in other instances, deaths were just offset until the lockdown ended and then the virus came back. So the idea that lockdown was necessary to save lives or to manage ill health is not really stacking up. And we do need to have a serious reckoning with the idea of lockdown, whether it was the right thing to do. And I think one of the most important aspects of that is defending the right of dissent and the right of freedom of speech. Because during the first lockdown in particular that came in uh, 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 exa almost exactly two years ago, uh, one of the most worrying things was the way in which anyone who raised questions was shut down. You were a granny killer, mm. you were a science denier, you were a COVID denier, even though what we accepted that COVID was a very real problem, but it, it, you were completely shut down and sneered and demonized. And that culture of unfreedom, that culture of crushing debate is one of the problems here because it means we don't test out all the alternatives. We don't have the discussions about what's going wrong with lockdown and instead everything is kind of repressed. So we have to defend the right of free, open discussion, especially in times of crisis. Oh, I think there's no question about that. And of course, lots of it is now being put down to a mistake. The government made a mistake. Well, it was a hell of a mistake to continue to make and to continue to sort of double down on uh, for two years, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, really? Mistake. A huge mistake for the government. I mean, I've made mistakes before I got on the wrong train. You know, I haven't actually <laughs> locked down an entire economy for two years. Yeah, and when you make a mistake, you usually try to rectify it quite quickly, whereas <laughs> that's not what the government did in this instance. And I think the media has a lot to answer here uh, as Certainly. well. You know, you remember those press conferences where, God, I, I don't even want to name any of the journalists. I don't want to think about them ever again, ideally. But those journalists would stand up every single evening and basically say, when are we going to lock down yeah, harder? Is right. this hard enough? People are still outside walking on beaches. What are you going to do about them? Just constant demand for more repression. Yes. No curiosity, no intellectual questioning, no critical thinking about whether the lockdown was the right thing to do. So the slavishness of the media in response to the government's authoritarianism, that was a key problem. And again, that really does show that what you need in times like this, when we are entering into, as we were back then, that the most unprecedented uh, attack on civil liberties in history, in those kinds of moments, you absolutely need a critical culture that asks the right questions. And that's what we need to restore, as well as asking whether the lockdown was the right thing to do. I think you're absolutely right. Brendan, stay with us for a moment, because I'm going to explore that a little bit more. Uh, we're talking to Brendan O'Neill, Chief Political Writer at Spiked. We want to talk about uh, the freedom of expression. We want to talk about the right to say what it is that you can say and that you want to say and that you should be able to say. We want to talk about all of that. We'll also talk about the BBC. We've got much more to do. We want your stories, of course, as well. Many of you are calling in already. Please do make the call, because we we need to get as many of these stories out there as possible. If you've had an experience with the NHS, even if it's a good one, which I very much doubt, do let us know. 0344 499 1000. More from Brendan O'Neill next. Unbelievably realistic. All because the nation loves talk radio. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We've got the Prince Philip Memorial Service for you today. Rupert Bell, our Royal Correspondent, is going to be in situ at Westminster Abbey. He's going to be popping in to see us uh, before he goes down there. Prince Andrew is going to be in attendance the first time we've seen him since he made that settlement uh, for rather a few million pounds uh, with Jennifer uh, Gouffre. Uh, we shall be talking about him. Uh, we'll be talking about the Queen as well. She will be in attendance, which is the first time we've seen her since the early part of February. We're talking to Brendan O'Neill right now. Brendan I want to keep your theme going of uh, freedom of speech and the whole business of uh, making sure that we are not allowing people off the hook who sort of misled us at the very least and possibly lied to us uh, at the very worst. But let me just mention uh, Laura Kunzberg to you because you reminded me of those dreaded uh, days of the press conferences and the stupid questions from various people. And it was always the same three that started it all off. She's gone to become the new Andrew Marr, effectively, as the host of the Sunday morning um, political show. It's an hour long. She's getting uh, £340,000 of our money. And I call it our money because the BBC is funded entirely by us, right? Now, I've worked out that pro rata, even if you don't count Plank of the Week and anything else that I might do, my five-day week would allow me to charge the BBC £5.1 million a year. It's, I mean, it's really shocking, the amount of money they're getting paid. And as you say, this is our money. You have to, by law, pay the BBC if you have a television set and if you use a television set. And, all, and, and I think that's starting to grate on people. It's starting to grate on people, firstly, because they do get paid these astronomical amounts that the vast majority of us can only dream of. Mm. Also, because the BBC seems increasingly unrepresentative of ordinary people and even increasingly hostile to ordinary people. We know it became the Brexit bashing corporation over the past few years. Yeah. And during COVID, it raised no critical questions at all. So it's it's become a kind of very out of touch institution. And also, we're in a different era. We're in the modern era. People pay to subscribe to all sorts of streaming services. We pick and choose what kind of channels and broadcasters we want to uh, watch on our iPads or our computers or our TVs. So the idea that we have to pay our money every month to an institution that doesn't understand us, probably doesn't like us, and gives ridiculous amounts of money to people like Laura Kunzberg, all of that seems increasingly stupid. It does, and it doesn't bode well for sort of, you know, freedom of expression and freedom of choice and lots of different guests like yourself going on to shows like hers, because I don't know whether you're invited onto the BBC very much. I'm not. Um, I'm quite happy not to be. But, I mean, you know, they don't talk to the same people we talk to at all. No, not at all. And I've been on the I, I go on the BBC sometimes and uh, I go on other channels, too. You know, but it, it's notable with the BBC that they do leave certain commentators out of the picture. And, you know, a, a good example is, is the issue of climate change. Yeah. So, you know, anyone who is a climate change sceptic is pretty much not allowed on the BBC anymore. Uh, it, they're seen as conspiracy theorists, even though many of them accept that climate change is happening and are quite expert in their field. They just don't think it's the end of the world as we know it. And mm. they don't think the apocalypse is around the corner. So anyone who has those kinds of critical points about a key issue of our time wouldn't get anywhere near a BBC studio. So they do engage in subtle forms of censorship where they push certain views to the extremes and say, 
no one should touch those ideas because they're a bit dangerous. And when the BBC plays that kind of role, instead of having honest public debates with all sorts of public figures, then that's a problem. It really is. Final question, Brendan. Um, Dominic Raab is promising that there will be sort of, uh, shall we say, supremacy uh, for free speech. And there should be now uh, a law going through the, par the, the, the parliament, which will sort of, um, I suppose, enrich our opportunity to, to speak freely. Are you confident that's going to work? I'm not, unfortunately. No, me neither. <laughs> I, I would like to be, but I'm not. And and firstly, because I just don't think the current Conservative Party really understands freedom of speech. And we've seen that with the online safety bill, which could pose a serious threat to freedom of speech on the internet. We've seen it with um, Nadine Doris. I, I don't particularly mind Nadine Doris, but she has made some worrying comments in recent weeks. For example, when that shocking Jimmy Carr joke was revealed yeah. from his Netflix uh, special, she said maybe at some point in the future, the government will be able to intervene in companies like Netflix too. That made me yeah. feel very uncomfortable. Absolutely. So th this is a government that doesn't really know what freedom of speech is. And also the other point is, institutionalizing freedom of speech through the law is a bit contradictory in my mind because i think it will come with caveats mm. and exceptions to the rule like the the human rights law guarantees freedom of speech but then it has a long list of caveats where freedom of speech can be undermined and i think the government would probably do something like that freedom of speech is about trusting ordinary people to listen to everything and to speak for themselves yeah. that's the culture we need and to have no restrictions on it really at all brendan good to talk to you thank you very much indeed brendan Neil, Chief Political Writer from Spike there, making an awful lot of sense about freedom of speech, about the NHS as well, which is the big subject we want to talk about today. We want to know your stories. We want to find out what's been happening out there in the big wide world. Uh, in the NHS's defence, which I'm not going to be doing, I don't think, very much today, um, Southmead Hospital in Bristol has changed its visiting recently. You can now visit between 11am and 7pm and you can have two visitors without having to book an appointment. Also, ladies can now have two birthing partners. Well, whoop-de-doo. Let's all move to Bristol, the greatest communist capital outside of Moscow. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Radio where you can let off some steam. Reason. Re-engineer. We think what you think. Smart speaker. Smart TV. Deadly accurate debate. Talk first. Talk fast. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Let's get to the phone calls, because that's what we're all about here at Talk Radio. We are the voice of the people. We're going to be sending your voices to the NHS. We're going to be finding out what Sajid Javid is going to do about this dreadful situation uh, where people cannot visit their sickly relatives, their dying relatives in some cases. Uh, and if they are allowed in, they're only allowed in for an hour once a day. Simon is in Sheffield. Hi, Simon. Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking me call. Not at all. What can I do for you? I'm in a situation with the NHS where I'm absolutely in despair. Mm. Uh, I was diagnosed with uh, arterial fibrillation. I had a, a mild stroke in December. Okay. Uh, and I was taken into Northern General. Well, I got myself there in a taxi because ambulance wouldn't come. Right. Uh, and uh, I got arterial fibrillation. And since then, I've been back 17 times with a racing heart. In, in, what, uh, in what time period is this? From early December. Blimey. Uh, 17 times just in the first three months of the year. And from, from la last week, I was in four times, three of them, 12 hours. Uh, they, they just want to send me home. Mm. I'm not even on... I found out yesterday, I'm not even on the waiting list for the operation to give me an abrasion to uh, to actually sort it out. Because a three-hour operation and sort my condition out. Yeah. But I'm not even on the waiting list. 
And why do they say that is the case? Well, the consultant's going on holiday for two weeks, whatever, and so nice. they can't get me in while they put 29 to, to sort it out. Right. To make matters even worse, my medication, my beta blockers for my heart problem mm. are not kicking in like they should do. And right. so I really need to see them and sort it out. Yeah. But, I'm, but the it's not the expertise and the and the uh, the staff. They're all working very hard. I, I can't fault the people that are looking after me and trying their best. Yes. The administration side of it is right. absolutely unbelievable. And how do you and how do, do you communicate? I mean, how do you communicate with them on the phone or on, on emails? Or you what? can never get through to anybody that can tell you anything right. on the phone. It can only be the consultant secretary at best. Right. And then yesterday I tried to contact him to buy my medication. He just wrote me a letter. And I've told him this morning, I said, I can't live with a letter. It's not going to make me better. Mm. I need to get my tablets sorted out right. if I'm going to be on a list. But I could be on a list longer than six months to a year. And I can't wait that long. No. I'm in pain every day. My heart's racing. Yeah. I mean, I've got I go in 140 beats a minute. That's and all they do is, is, sit, is sit me there. And like all the diet I went in, and they sat me there. And they give me one of my own tablets at 4 a.m. Mm. And they wanted to let me go 140 beats a minute, but that's only because they're under pressure. They don't let me walk out. And what do you see when you're in the hospital? Is it busy? I mean, are they all running it's around like, like a crazy? Penal colony in what I go in. Right. It's terrible. It's just absolute chaos. Really? Goodness. What? Uh, two, what loads of people running about? Room. Yeah, there's, there's people being trained waiting room. You go into you go into into Northern and you go to you can all put desk to, to book in. And then while you're waiting for triage, I mean, there's loads in. You can't even get a seat sometimes. Mm. Uh, there's police running about. They're taking prisoners in. There's all sorts happening. Not against anyone that's going in, but there's all sorts of walks of life sat there. And you go through triage. They tell you, ask you what's up. They know me anyway, now mm. I've been that many I times. I bet they do, then, yeah. Then, then you go into a little room. Uh, you'll go through your your blood tests. And then you put in another waiting room. And you probably get trapped in the other waiting room as well as much as you do. Mm. In an hospital ward. It's shocking, absolutely shocking. So, what are you going to do today, Simon? What are you going to do next? Just hope it don't come on again. Yeah, I'm just sat here hoping it don't come on again. I don't know where to turn. Yeah, I don't know what to do. I just absolutely in despair. Can the GP help you at all? I've asked the GP, and they just says go back to hospital. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I'm really sorry, Simon. Listen, I'll try. If I can get uh, some some medical person on here, I'll try and find out what what they can do for you, what what we can do to maybe speed things up, because that's shocking, absolutely shocking. Simon, thank you. Appreciate your time and and good luck with getting yourself treated. This is what people get frustrated about. They can't see people. Once you get inside the NHS, I'm no doubt uh, that most of the treatment is very good. However, it's getting in there. It's getting past the sort of you know. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The guards, it's getting past the secretaries, it's getting past the reception area where you're sitting for hours on end. It's madness. We're going to try one more time. Lord Robertson is here. Uh, Lord Andrew Robertson, to be precise, former Armed Services Minister. Lord Robertson, hello. Good morning. Good morning. Sorry about all of the messing around. Uh, well, I'm afraid the tech keeps coming and going. I heard you a minute ago, but now you've stopped again. Yeah, okay. Probably my computer. It could well be. Well, listen, I hope you're well. Um, let us talk about a few things, really. I mean, first of all, this rather shocking story about the, uh, uh, the alleged chemical attack on Roman Abramovich, uh, who went to take part in some peace talks, um, found himself uh, being poisoned, it seems. Well, it, I, I know nothing about it except to say that if it were poison, it was not a very effective poison. Mm. That's all I'd say. I mean, I, I have no idea. Do you think that this kind of story is the kind of story that's sort of uncheckable, in other words? I think it is uncheckable. Um, I'm not going to say it's fake news, but it, it's slightly strange, isn't it? I mean, if, if, why, why would he be poisoned? Who would poison him? And it wasn't very effective. I mean... I could poison somebody a bit better than that, frankly. <laughs> I mean, the funny thing about this whole war, really, is that it is entirely not just a war on the ground. There is a massive amount of propaganda uh, being put out there, probably from all sides, isn't there? Absolutely. Absolutely right. And, um, you know, I, I will obviously tend to believe the Ukrainians, but I don't expect all their figures and facts are right either. No. Exactly right. And I mean, as far as the way the strategy appears to be going, from what we, we can denude from it all, taking away all of the, uh, the razzmatazz and, and, the, and the kind of the, the, cheer, the cheerleading from the sides, it does look as though Russia's military ambitions are being thwarted on a daily basis. Well, I think I, I, mean, I don't want to go back too far back in history, but if you look at the Winter War in 1939, when Finland, which I think had a population of less than a million, held up the mass towards of the Soviet Union, mm. then the Soviet Union was much bigger than Russia. Um, I think uh, I think what you've got here is 44 million Ukrainians, pretty united in a... OK, it's quite a flat country, and it's a large part step, but uh, pretty united against the Russians. I think the Russians completely underestimated it. I'm old enough, not dissimilar age to Putin, to remember the invasion of Czechoslovakia in 
uh, Prague Spring in 1968. Yeah. And I think Putin thought his tanks would roll in and that'd be fine. Yeah. And does that tell you more about the, the Russian sort of military complex, if you like, um, that it's still slightly old fashioned and slightly less modern than it, than, than it would be uh, if it was not Russia, if you know what I mean? Um, I, I think that's true. I think you've also got, um, I mean, you only need to look at some of their generals. They're, they're getting on for my sort of age, which is a bit bloody old. Um, and um, they, um, I think a lot of them are in a mindset from the, the Cold War, which is now over some 30 years. Uh, unfortunately, we have spent the peace dividend, so-called, after the Cold War in 1990 ended, um, we spent it several times over, and that's why we're looking a bit silly, in my opinion. Yeah. As far as the British aid is concerned for um, uh, for Zelensky and for Ukraine, um, they seem pleased with what we're giving them. The, the weaponry certainly seems to be much more modern than anything the Russians have got. Yeah. Um, and um, is Britain doing the right thing, do you think? There's not much more, really, that Britain could do, is there? I don't think I don't think can do much more. President Zelensky has particularly praised uh, Boris Johnson for his support. Um which is, you know, these, these anti-tank weapons and so on are having a tremendous impact on the Russian armour. Um, and I think, you know, that's the right thing to do. Should we introduce a no-fly zone? Well, I think we should not be the people that escalate any conflict. And I think if we were to start shooting down Russian jets, that would be escalation. It would. And also, from, from what I understand, if we were to operate a no-fly zone, it would also involve hitting targets possibly inside Russia. Exactly. Which, exactly. would, which would not be the greatest idea anybody ever had. What do you make of what James Heapy said today, the Armed Forces Minister, uh, who said small fighting units are more effective now in warfare, uh, therefore that justifies us cutting the size of the military in this country? I think uh, James Heapy is doing very well. I think he's having a good war, if I can put it like that, without sounding too cynical. Mm. Um, I think he's constrained by what came out. Uh, look, um, he said small groups of people. In order to have small groups of people, you need to have a large reservoir from which to recruit them. Um, special forces, people see, so let's have more special forces. In order to have special forces, you need to have people that aren't so special, that they're better than. Yeah. And if you're shrinking the army, as we are doing, to uh, 72,000 or whatever it is, which is pathetic, um, you're not going to have a big enough reservoir of people to actually choose decent people to do, uh, to do these tasks for. And I'm afraid it's not a binary thing. Um, you know, we talk about space and cyber and drones it's not binary it's not either or you've got mm. to have both you've got to have both putin, what do you think putin thought when we said oh we're going to reduce our army by 11 percent and we're going to reduce the number of aircraft and uh, and um ships he thought this is a country that's not taking defense seriously mm. we need to do both and i'm afraid we do need to increase defense spending uh because actually surely the whole world and the whole of britain can now see that this is not a great safe world we're living in it's one which is filled with some which has some pretty nasty people in it who are after us yes and it proves rather uh, does it not the sort of stop the war coalition crowd uh, have never been more wrong because in the end you can't win anything from a position of weakness um pacifism is an entirely reasonable position to take but just remember that i don't think adolf hitler was very interested in people's pacifism and nor, I suspect, is President Putin. Um, and we'll stop the war coalition. I mean, we haven't always got everything right. I think we could... I was pretty much against uh, the way we operated in Afghanistan. Um, but actually, you know, you have to, by all means, speak softly, but carry a big stick. Yeah. And if you don't carry that big stick, 
people will ride roughshod over you. That's not a mixed analogy. No, I don't think so. I think you're absolutely right. And are you confident, um, Lord Robertson, that we, that we as the West can sort of contain this particular war in Ukraine? Um, I'm, uh, I, I think, well, look, I've been saying for some time, um, that I may be entirely wrong, that um, I believe the Ukrainians, with their tactics, can literally win, whatever winning means, um, because the Russian logistic chain tail is so stretched um the russian morale is so poor and actually their tactics have been very bad um you know that uh, i was uh, in the first gulf war and the logistics for the first gulf war were staggering there was end-to-end traffic going up to the front carrying food ammunition supplies fuel whatever it might be um and uh, that's what you need to have and i'm afraid it's what the russians didn't have nor what the Ukrainians, I believe, are sensibly targeting. Target the soft, clean vehicles that back that are less, less difficult to get at, and therefore you've got a lot of tanks that can't move. Absolutely right. Lord Robertson, very good to talk to you. Thank you. We finally got there in the end. Former Armed Services Minister uh, talking about how the containment uh, is, of course, working still in Ukraine. There are peace talks going on today in Turkey, we understand. We'll keep you updated uh, with all of those uh, as they go. Uh, Walk softly and carry a big stick. Reminded me, of course, of that great line from Colonel Nathan Jessup in uh, A Few Good Men. Walk softly and carry an armoured tank division. That seems to work quite well, too. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Independent talk. Proper talk. News talk. Talk radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. With the self-appointed revolutionary of reason, Mike Graham. On talk radio. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are the home of common sense. We've been uh, digging down uh, into the backstories of some of the people who've been talking to us, some of the people who've been calling us over the last couple of days. It was all kicked off by Bernard Sparks, uh, our good friend and a businessman up in the northeast of England. Uh, he had difficulties visiting his son uh, in the Sunderland Hospital. His ex-wife also had difficulties because they have this ludicrous rule, um, one visitor for one hour every single day and it can't be more than one person and in some places uh, it can't be anybody at all like in Scotland we're going to be talking uh, to Martin Gower former NHS Trust chairman coming up in this hour Uh, but if you've got things to tell us we want to talk to you as well this is from Shelley arriving home after the hour visit with my terminally ill dad I get a desperate distressed phone call from him knowing I'm not allowed back there to comfort him is heartbreaking I'm in the process of getting him home I can't bear it any longer we're getting these kind of stories and these kind of tales every single minute of every single day and we will not stop until we've told somebody who's in a position of power either in the government or the nhs that this policy has to stop it's cruel it's unusual uh, it's ghastly and quite frankly it's inhuman it shouldn't be going on we'll try to find out from martin gower exactly how we got here exactly how the nhs became quite so terribly um tone deaf when it comes to looking after patients and their families. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Uh, Of course, uh, we'll also be going back to Rupert Bell, uh, who's at the Duke of Edinburgh's um, uh, memorial service going on currently at Westminster Abbey. The Queen is there. Apparently, she walked in on the arm of Prince Andrew. Some people might think that's a bit unfortunate, but he is, after all, her son. 0344 499 1000 is the number. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet, it is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, just before we speak to Martin Gower, let's hear from Kim, who's in Kent, who's been waiting very patiently on the phone. Kim, a very good afternoon to you. Hello, Mike. How are you? Very well indeed. What can you tell us, Kim? 
My daughter, eight months pregnant, a couple of nights ago, got severe chest pain. She's been getting, getting heart palpitations mm. and all sorts of weird symptoms. She was told by 111 to go to A&E, where she sat for six hours, not offered a drink, no vending machines working, foxes outside the door just rummaging in fly-blown rubbish, people mm. shouting, total chaos. Um, it's got spiralling COVID rates in there as well. And she's been told it's in special measures. It's always, Basildon Hospital has always been in and out of special measures. Mm. Well, for, for the last few years in particular. Um, and that she, they're, they're supposed to be reviewing this again, I think. Um, there's, another, there's another review, I think, on, on the horizon for Basildon Hospital. Yeah. But, uh, you know, eight, eight months pregnant and you've got chest pains and you're told to sit and wait. And you can't even have a drink of water. Right. And how long was she waiting for? Six hours. Goodness and me. she was on her own because, because her partner had to stay at home with my other two grandsons. Because right. obviously they, she didn't want to drag them in there as well. Right. And so she couldn't go, ask him to go and get a drink or anything. So uh, she just sat there with, with, uh, with no drink and nobody apparently interested, to right. be honest. What I heard. It's a terrible situation, isn't it? And we hear so much of this. And if it was a kind of one-off here and there, and if it was a, you know, a, an unfortunate, you know, geographical problem, that would be one thing. It appears to be all over the system. Well, it does. You know, I mean, our own doctor's surgery here in Kent, and um, it, it had a reputation for being the worst doctor's surgery in Kent about a year ago. Um, chains on the door, so you can't go in. Yeah. Um, people wearing masks. Telling you to telling you to keep your distance and handing things over, you know, like if you had to go and get a form for anything, it's very sort of gingerly handed to you, yes. you know, sort of from a distance, you know, like you've got bubonic plague or something. And you know, when I've had to try and speak to my doctor this past year or so, it's been, oh well, we'll call you back and you can speak to him over the phone. Yeah. Um, and at one point, I think it was my husband had had a sore thumb. He was asked to take a picture of it. You know, yeah, so, it's just yeah. not really good enough, Kim. Listen, thanks very much for your call. Uh, we've got to move on because Martin Gower's here. We want to talk to him. He's a former NHS Trust chairman. Martin, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. Thanks. thanks for having me on the Home of Common Sense. Well, listen, we're trying our best to get to the bottom of how we got here, really, because it seems to me that um, we sort of touched upon this yesterday unexpectedly, discovered that there's an awful lot of people around the country who aren't allowed to see their relatives when they want, who can't get in to uh, see them in a hospital for more than one hour a day, at one at a time, that kind of thing. I mean, it seems cruel at the very least. It seems ludicrous as well, that post-COVID, if you like, that we're still in this kind of holding pattern. Yeah. I, mean, I'm, like, I think, I think it, uh, the, thing, the stories I've heard on your show this morning have been absolutely appalling. Mm. I mean... Um, I, I'm happy to be a former chair of NHS Trust and not being one at the moment with right. all that sort of stuff going on. Now, I think that there are there are a couple of things here. One is that the there is a huge variety in the conditions of visitors from hospital to hospital. Mm. I've actually been doing a, a whiz round this morning. I had a long chat with another former NHS chair of one of the biggest acute hospitals in the country. And one thing for certain is that it's up to the individual trust as to how they decide um, what the visiting rules are. Right. Um, the first one I went to, if, if you wanted to be a visitor, you were greeted in white out of red, about 72 point, hospital visiting is currently suspended. 
Right. So, so that was a welcome visit. It says visiting a patient. Hospital visiting is currently suspended. Now, what gets me is not just what's happening. And, you know, that the Omicron variant or the current variant development of Omicron is still around. And in some places, it, it, I mean, I've just had it. Uh, I haven't had much contact with anyone for mm. not for reasons of not wanting to, but I've just come back from America where I've where I've been visiting my my children and grandchildren. Um, but actually, the 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 um, it it is pretty vicious at the moment. It's pretty rampant. Mm. And I understand that in areas where they have a particularly high infection rate, I can understand why um, uh, people would want to 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 impose restrictions. But it is very patchy. It's very patchy. And I think although you're getting this huge number of complaints about the NHS, I think they, they are often issues with local systems that cause it. It may well be true. Yeah, you could be right, Martin. But unfortunately, it seems to be local systems in every part of the country. And in Scotland, for example, there are no visitors allowed at all anywhere in any hospital uh, or any care home. And the thing that worries me slightly is that, you know, yes... I accept that, the, that there's been another sort of more recent outbreak. I know people who have got the new version of, uh, of it. Um, it doesn't seem to be quite as bad as the last version of it. And surely the whole point is if the country is learning to live with it, as the Prime Minister has said, then surely the NHS, even more so, has to learn to live with COVID. You can't just tell people you can't be treated for anything else because there's a bunch of other people who might get COVID. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the NHS, nobody centrally in the NHS is going to force different hospital trusts to do things in, in the same way. Um, some of the hospitals are quite old. They're more difficult to have infection control. I'm not just defending them, Mike. But but the but the, the, the issues are dealt with locally by the infection control people. It's normally the medical director and the director of nursing. These are professionals who are imposing these. It's not, not some uh, faceless bureaucratic uh, board member. These are medical professionals who decide but it's about risk it's about risk assessment and and that's how they reach their decision however that all being the case the quality of communication between the patients and the nhs trust from what i've heard this morning is absolutely appalling and this is a cultural issue um i've campaigned for the nhs to be radically and i mean radically reorganized uh, including much greater involvement from the private sector. Frankly, if the NHS was a, a business that was dealing with uh, customers, they would have gone bust long ago. No, they would. Uh, well, because, because they have no—they seemingly have no control. I'm going to ask you in a minute what you would do, because they seem to have no control over their spending. The government's asking us to give them even more money so they can have even more money to waste. You know, we know, for example, one of the things that's happened, and you may have experience of this up in Sunderland, where our original caller came from yesterday, is they've changed the name of the hospital about four times recently. Each time they've changed it, they've had to change all the signage, they've had to change all the signs inside the hospital, outside of it, you know. And you go, well, what are you wasting money like that for? What's the point of that? And we've all seen, and I know that you might say it's a small part of the uh, the budget, but we've all seen the adverts for diversity managers for this, you know, um, you know, you know, pro trans managers for that. You know, it's all over the place, and they not the now, money doesn't seem to be going to the right places. Uh, Mike, you're absolutely right. I mean, the NHS at the moment needs to focus exclusively or what it needs to do to get, catch up with the waiting lists and get back to some kind of normality. All of those things are sideshows, to be honest. Mm. They're looking for things that don't exist. I worked in a trust where we had many, many 
um, uh, um, staff who were who from what was called the BAME community. The relations were excellent, but I was in a trust where we had su a superb culture. And we need the culture in many places is not good, but they do need to focus on what needs to be done to get things right, not on equality and diversity and any changing the signage, changing the name of the hospital. All of that is nonsense. Park it. It can, it can be done in five years' time. Mm. Now is the time to get the job done and get the issues sorted. And I take the point, too, on the money. Um, the money will, will go down a black hole. Yeah. And I mean, it's not, like there's no, it's not like there's no money. There's no shortage of money. In fact, it's probably too much money. There is probably too much money. And frankly, um, there, there are too many people who are not patient-facing staff who are, who are looking at, um, you know, um, things to do with... Um, the Care Quality Commission uh, to do with equality and diversity, all lots and lots of issues. Right now, we need well-led organisations, and most of it goes back to the leadership. Most of it does because there are, and I'll say this in fairness to the NHS, there are some very, very good NHS trusts around the country. You'll never hear much about them, of course, but they don't have enough compl people complaining about mm. them. But there are some very, very good organisations. Do you know, for example, I'm not put, trying to put you on the spot here, Martin, but only because you are in the business. Do you happen to know whether anyone in any trust in this country is allowing old style visiting hours so that you can go with well, a bunch of people and visit your sick relative? Well, I read one this morning, um, very close to where I live. And it says, as of Sunday, the 20th of March, we'll be allowing two visitors per patient to visit each day between the hours of 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. So two can go in okay. for between yeah. 6 and 8. Then it says, on compassionate grounds, um, we, if you're visiting, in fact, no time limit is placed, and up to four visitors can attend. Now, I don't actually think that's unreasonable. I don't think so either. Well, I wish everybody would adopt it. Why can't you get them well, to pass that on to the, everybody else, can you? Well, let me tell you that I can. I, I'm, I'm proud to be close to that. Hospital. It's actually the main, very large acute hospital in Coventry. Okay. Um, and so does Coventry, does Coventry have a particularly low level of COVID infection? I mean, there's no, something doesn't. special? No, it doesn't. No. But what they're recognising is that, I mean, people, look, people are sensible. It's not like the whole lockdown issue was stupid, really. People are genuinely sensible. If I had a very sick relative in hospital at the moment and I wanted to go and visit them, I would actually take a lateral flow desk before I went. Yeah, of course. Why wouldn't because you? Because I'm to, but, but because I think it will be a responsible thing to do. That is the kind of, the kind of messaging we need, you know? Not this... Um, but this is, this is the issue. You raised it earlier. Uh, the idea that, that medical professionals are um, assimilating risk and making decisions based upon what they think is an acceptable risk. I don't think they're qualified to do that. Because I think some of these medical practitioners would like to see zero COVID. They'd like to see zero infections. They talk about things. I've spoken to some of these people. They talk about, you know, stopping uh, preventable death. Well, if people, if, you know, death is not preventable. People die for all sorts of reasons. You can't prevent it unless you think you're King Canute or something. You know, preventable death is a ludicrous, uh, ten, uh, you know, sentence, a ridiculous term. And I think the problem for an awful lot of these hospitals is that they're run with undue um, aversion to risk. You know, everything is risky. Exactly and if true. you work in a hospital, there's a pretty good chance there's some infection there. And it's your job when you run the hospital to minimise that infection, not by not letting people in. I mean, you might as well say, you know, the best way to keep people from being killed in prison is not to send anyone to prison. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, Mike, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think the, the risk averse thing, I mean, clearly that the, the, the hospital that, that uh, published that, yeah. you know, that, that right bang on the front of their website. Now they are highly risk averse. They, they are, they would be, we don't want a single person stepping over a threshold where there's the slightest risk that they might bring COVID into the hospital. But I do see also that if, if there are a very, very sick patient and you have got COVID, even though it's now a mild disease, I've just had it. I'm, I'm just, I've just recovered. I did my second uh, test yesterday saying I was negative. Right. I've just had it. And, and I wasn't very ill, but while I had it, I wouldn't have visited a, a very sick patient. And simply because I think we'll be irresponsible to do so, not because the hospital told me I couldn't. Sure. And this is the problem. Yeah, but the thing is, there are very sick patients in hospitals. I mean, people go into ICU because they're not very well, you know. Um, Unfortunately, that's the hospital's job then to protect them. But you can't just block off surely the whole building, can you? No, you can't. And and, and you shouldn't. And the hospital I just told you about in Coventry certainly isn't. uh, but it is a modern hospital. It was fairly recently built. Mm. I think some of the older hospitals, the, the patients are a bit more, you know, the corridors are narrow. There's all sorts of, of reasons why they may be a little more concerned. But the, we, we, we have to get back to normal. Now, I, I, I understand it's likely that COVID is going to fall in the number of infections as quickly as it came along. And the, the estimate is that would happen probably in mid-April. Yes. I want to see hospital trust changing their rules about visiting then. Yes. Because it's because also I think the basic tenant of, of my argument as well, Martin, is, is, is not necessarily a medical one, but it kind of is a medical one because it's about people's well-being. It's about people's mental health. And you've heard many people talking to me in the last couple of days. We've got even more people who want to talk to me. They're very distraught by the fact that they can't see their very, very ill father who might be dying. I mean, in Bernard's case, his son was in a coma having tried to take his own life. They wouldn't let the boy's mother in because the father had already been in. You know, these are not, you know, decisions that are made without any kind of collateral damage. You know what I mean? Yeah. And in the the trust I just told you about, it says here, one of the reasons that you'll be given uh, leave on compassionate grounds to have up to four visitors for as long as you want to is emotional and or physical support. And, and and that just seems to me to be so eminently sensible and fair. Um, and the, the, the other trust, the extreme one I gave you, uh, that then proceeds to have four pages of what you have to do mm. if they if they do allow you in. Right. When you've got to wash your hands, when you've got to put your mask on and take it off. Right. I mean, it, it, it is a nonsense. The, and and the, we the, know, and we also know, Martin, and I realise that you can argue that hospitals are slightly different environments, but in no other part of the country is this going on. No. Um, well, I don't know about no other part of the country, but it... Well, what I mean is in no other business is it happening. You know, you're oh, no, no longer no, no. you're no longer no. being told you must wear a mask in any situation. You're no longer being told um, that you can't go into certain places. You know, it's only hospitals that are operating like this and doctor surgery. Then, then surgeries are a bit the same. I, I was actually due to go to Specsavers later on today, but I cancelled. And the whole thing about wearing masks, taking tests, temperature, all of that was still in place to have your eyes tested. Um, so there were, you know, there are there are others who are well, still I, well, kind of well. That's well, that's their that's their uh, that's their decision because I had my I just got some new glasses recently. I didn't have to do any of that. No, well, that's brilliant. But but my local local um, opticians are wanting wanting to do all of that. But but 
it, it, I think the point is that this is just an evidence of what's wrong in the NHS. Mm. There are people that, that, and the, if you look at other foreign systems, and I was quite familiar with the French system because I have friends in France and I lived in France for a while, and I'm very familiar with the American system because I used to live in LA mm -hmm. um, many years back when I was working in the media. And, and, and so I, I think most of the solutions are local solutions. The idea that you have some national person called a secretary of state or the chief executive of NHS and saying, this is what everybody has to do, is a nonsense. It's never going to work. No. And people worked with, with, in, with the private sector, the voluntary sector. I can remember being part of a local organization in a part of LA where actually we raised the money for the local hospital in order to get the latest version of a scanner. Yeah. We raised through charity and it was great, you know. Right. Why not? No, listen, I lived in I lived in New York myself for ten years and, and I found the American system to be very, very uh, easy to manage and easy to navigate. Um, and yes, there will be some people who don't get the treatment perhaps that they should get. But most of them do. My mother uh, who I've already said once today, 98 today, uh, lives in Connecticut. You know, she has she has health cover. She has health insurance. Yep. If anything goes wrong, it's covered by the state. She can't afford to pay 20 grand to Yale Hospital every time they do something. But yep. it gets paid for by the state because of her age. And in the state of New York at the moment, nobody's allowed to turn any patients away in a hospital right. in New York. So yeah, there's a lot of rubbish talked about the American health system. But listen, I think you and I need to talk some more, Martin, because it's fascinating listening to you. Um, you've obviously got a great insight into the business. And I'd like to hear more about your plan and how we could change the NHS in a way. Um, so let's try and do that again. Uh, Martin Gower, their former NHS Trust chairman. Um, it's easy to see what's gone wrong in the NHS. They've let people like Martin Gower go and do something else. Because I bet when he was there, it wasn't this bad. Do you know what I'm saying? This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 